0: Well, we we will um, continue our series in Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Last week, <clears throat> we heard a wonderful message on the threefold office of Christ. Uh, he is prophet, priest, and king. And I want to uh, continue that and and piggyback of piggyback off of what was said by Brother Bobby last week. Uh, when I was younger, a lot younger, um, I had a six DVD set of uh, all the important games of Michael Jordan's career. Uh, and these games that that I used to watch were uh, the games that were in the season in which he would, uh, when he won his six championships. And I can remember uh, fast-forwarding the times when he would... Uh, uh, win those championships and celebrate with his teammates, but I would also enjoy the times when I would uh, watch the games of Michael Jordan uh, and, and see what he went through in order for him to earn a championship, uh, what he did, what the teammates did, uh, how grueling the season was in order for him to accomplish such a great goal. And I think my uh, me, me wanting to know how Michael Jordan uh, won this particular championship um, echoes what everyone, or I should say, most of society feels in terms of people who accomplish great things. Uh, we want to know how great objectives were accomplished. Uh, What were the details that uh, went into capturing uh, Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden? What do we have to do in order for these great achievements to be accomplished? Uh, What were the trials that uh, those great football teams and baseball teams and basketball teams of the past? uh, What were their trials? What were their tribulations and what did they go through in order for them to earn that championship? We read books. Uh, we watch great documentaries. Uh, there are movies out on how amazing objectives were accomplished. And saints, when we learn about how these amazing objectives were accomplished, then two things happen. Uh, first, we have a, a a better understanding of of how that person or team uh, got to that particular place in order for them to win that championship. And then secondly, we have a better appreciation for the achievement and for the work that the person accomplished. We have a better appreciation of, of not only the person, but also the work. Not only the accomplishment, but also what went into that accomplishment. So a question I have for you, saints, is what did Jesus Christ do in order for you to be redeemed and forgiven of your sins? What did Jesus Christ do in order for you to be redeemed and forgiven of your sins? In order for the greatest accomplishment in all of the world to ever be accomplished—that is, the the the, the 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 redeeming of your sins, that the reconciliation to God, sinners to God—what did Christ have to do? What did Christ have to do? And the typical answer that many give is when one asks, what did Christ do? The response, well, he died for me. What did he do? Christ died for me. And while we should uphold the uh, death of Christ, and we affirm that we are forgiven by God, we have peace with God through the death of Christ, we say amen to that. We must not limit the work of Christ to simply him dying. We can't limit the work of Christ simply to him dying. It is a popular and common opinion that Christ's death encompasses Christ's work. What I mean by that is when we think Christ's work, we think Christ's death. And although Christ's death is uh, in Christ's work, it is not the whole of Christ's work. It is the climax of Christ's work, but it is not the whole of Christ's work. And saints, it's improper to limit the work of Christ to him dying. <clears throat> and I would add, if you say that all that Christ did for you is simply die, then you have a low view of what Christ did for you. Not that, now I'm not undermining the death of Christ, but if you simply say that all Christ did was die for you, then you have a low view in the sense of, you don't know the full measure of what Christ did for you. You don't have a full understanding of what Christ did for you, if you simply say, "Christ simply died for me, so Saints this evening, what I want to answer is this simple question: What was the work of Christ? What was the work of Christ? what went, in, what went into um, sinners to be reconciled to God? What went into us being forgiven of our sins? in order for us to answer that question, we must consider. The covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. So we'll do that in three points. Number one. What is the covenant of redemption? And number two. What is the work of the son? And number three. What is our response? Number one. What is the covenant of redemption? Number two. What is the work of the son? And number three. What is our response? So let's begin our evening and our lesson with the first point, and that is, what is the covenant of redemption? What is the covenant of redemption? And I know means I tend to be exhaustive here, um, but this term uh, covenant of redemption is a term that you've heard before. Uh, it's a term that you are familiar with or you should be. It's a term that I'm sure you studied on and that you have read about. Uh, but we're, to refresh your memory, the covenant of redemption is the covenant established in eternity between the Father the Father. Who gives to the son to who gives the son to be the redeemer of the elect and requires of him the conditions for their redemption and the son who voluntarily willingly gives agrees to fulfill these conditions and the spirit who voluntarily applies the work of the son to the elect. That was a mouthful. Let me give it to you one more time. The covenant established in eternity between the father Who gives the son to be the redeemer of the elect and requires of him the conditions for their redemption and the son who voluntarily agrees to fulfill these conditions and the spirit who voluntarily applies the work of the son to the elect. The covenant of redemption is not a covenant that you are familiar with. You've heard of the covenant of works between God and and Adam. You've heard of the Abrahamic covenant between God and Abraham or, or the Mosaic or the Noahic. But here we see in the covenant of redemption, it's not a covenant in which God makes with man or that God imposes on man. But it's a covenant between the one God who eternally exists in three persons. It's a covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son being the primary parties of the covenant. Simply said, the covenant of redemption is the agreement between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where the Father gave to the Son a mission and work to accomplish. That's the covenant of redemption and that's what we must that's what we must begin with. The Father gave to the Son a work to accomplish, a mission to do. And the Son voluntarily took the place of those whom the Father had given to the Son. The Son says, Amen to what the Father uh, uh, commands the Son to do. And the Spirit would empower the Son to complete the mission that was given to the Son by the Father. And saints, this is all for the glory of the triune God. The covenant of redemption is for the glory of the triune God. The the triune God would glorify themselves through the work of the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. So friends, that is an overall view of the the covenant of redemption. Now let's get into the specifics. And what I mean by that is um, the two primary parties, the Father and the Son, we said we learned that the covenant of redemption says that the father in eternity past gave to the son a work to do. The father in eternity past gave to the son a work to do. In other words, the son, the father gave to the son particular commitments or commands for the son to do. There was a work that the father gave to the son. Now we have to ask, what was this work? What were these commitments? What were these commands that the father in eternity past gave to the son? What were those? Well, number one, the son must be a federal head for a specific people. The son must be a federal head for a specific people. Number two, the son must become incarnate. The son must become incarnate. Number three, he must be born under the law and live perfectly to the law of God. And number four, he must suffer and bear the sins of his people. And if he didn't catch all those, and that's okay. Well, we're going to cover those in the next point. But uh, the son was to be a federal head. He was to become incarnate. He was to be. Uh, he was to uh, live under the law or be born under the law, live uh, by the law, and live perfectly to the law. And number three and four, he must suffer and bear the sins of his people. Those are the commitments or commands of the, of the son from the father. In other words, that was the work of Jesus Christ. It wasn't simply him dying. There was much more that goes into the work of Jesus Christ. He must do those things, but he must do them perfectly. He must do and fulfill the commitments of the covenant perfectly. He must represent his people perfectly. He must live for them perfectly, and he must die for them. But there was a reward that was attached. Uh, It wasn't as if the father gave to the son a work to do with no reward that was attached. And and similar to in the covenant of works, when God imposed the covenant with Adam, there was a a work that Adam was to do. But also, if Adam completed his work, if if he passed through temptation, then he would receive Sabbath, or the creator's Sabbath rest, his, his mutable state would turn or transform into an immutable state. Just like with Christ, if, if, or the son, I should say, when, if the son completed his mission, if he completed his work, there was a reward. And the reward was this. If the son completed his mission from the father, the father would reward the son with a bride. The son would reward or the father would reward the son with a bride. We can say a love gift, a people, a specific people group for the glorification of the son's name. Secondly, if the son completed his mission, he would be resurrected from the dead. He would be resurrected from the dead. If the son completed his mission, he would be resurrected from the dead. He would receive resurrected life. Thirdly, the father would glorify the son upon completion of this mission. If the son completed his mission, the father would glorify the son. He would give to the son or the son would have resurrected, glorified life. And lastly, if the son completed his mission, he would be exalted and given a name that is above every name. Those are the rewards that the son would receive if he completed his mission, if he completed the work that the father gave to him to do, what the father promises to the son, the reward that was promised to the son is a people, an exalted name, and resurrected glorified life. A people, exalted name, and resurrected glorified life. If Christ does this, becomes incarnate, live perfectly to the law, and die in the place of sinners he would receive this he would receive a glorified name a name that is above every name and resurrected and glorified life but he wouldn't do that on his own behalf but he would do that on the behalf of others lastly before we close this point we must know saints that the mission that the father gave to the son in eternity past wasn't a mission that the Son was to do alone. The mission that the, that the Father gave to the Son in eternity past wasn't a mission that the Son was to do alone. For the Father promised to support and uphold the Son in His work. The Father would give the incarnate Son, the Holy Spirit, in full measure. The humanity of the Son would receive in full measure the Holy Spirit, in order that he may perfectly complete his mission that the Father had given to him in eternity past. Now let's move on to our second point, and that is the work of the Son. And before we close, or while we're moving on, saints, um, <clears throat> if you have a get a chance, listen to the two sermons uh, Pastor Antonio did um, when he spoke of the covenant of redemption, and those will give you a, a better, more broader, um, and more specific uh, teaching on the covenant of redemption. So let's look at the third point, and that is, what is the work of the Son? What is the work of the Son? The work of the Son. Now that we examined the covenant of redemption, and we've seen that the Father gave a mission to the Son to do, now let's look with more detail with the work that the Son and the task that he was to perform. So if you're writing notes, you can simply put, what is the work of the son? What is the work of the son? And we'll examine Christ's work with four subpoints. We'll examine Christ's work in four subpoints. So, if you ever think, if you ever question, what did what did Jesus Christ do for me? This is your answer in this uh point. Uh subpoint number 1. The son was to be a federal head for a specific people. The son was to be a federal head for a specific Now, that's language that you've all heard before, saints. You've all heard of federal headship. Um, We've all said it from this pulpit. If you read the great minds of our reformed tradition, they all speak of federal headship. But to refresh your memory, when we say that the son was to be a federal head for a specific people, what we are saying is the son was to represent a particular people group. When you think federal head, think representative. Think representative or represent one who goes before someone else. One who represents someone else. Similar to our president um, who represents us when he goes to these other countries and, and all of that. He represents the American people, the American voice. Well, what we see in the work of redemption The son represents his elect. The son represents that bride, that love gift, who was promised to him if he completed his work. The son is to be a federal head, and he is to perform on the behalf of others. And if we look at the overall story of the Bible, there are only two federal heads that matter. Adam, of course, and Jesus Christ. Adam and Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink says "There, are uh, there, but two federal heads, Adam and Christ, with which whom God entered into a covenant, each of them acted and hear this, each of them acted on the behalf of others, each legally represented as definite people, so much so that all whom they represented were regarded by God as being in them. I hope you caught that language when when Adam in the garden when if if since he was our representative since he was our federal head God viewed uh, viewed us as if we were in Adam Adam did what we were to do or or and, and he sinned as if as if uh, just like we were uh just as if if uh, he sinned uh, and did what we were to or going to do um when we think about Adam and we think about what he did, we often think uh, we wouldn't have sinned in the garden. Well, that's not true for Adam represented us and he, he did what we were going to do. Adam represented the whole human race. Christ represented all those who the father had in his eternal counsels given to him. So what we see is Adam represented the entire human race and Christ represents a new human race, a better human race, the elect, the church. The Bible teaches us clearly that there are two federal heads for the human race, Adam and Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, As in Adam all die, so as in Christ all be made alive. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was our federal head. He represented the entire human race. And when Adam sinned in the Garden, it is as if we sinned in the Garden. Adam did nothing that, that we wouldn't have done. God Uh, Because of Adam's sin, God separated himself from Adam. Because of Adam's sin, God separated himself from Adam. But it wasn't just Adam. And it wasn't just Eve. It was the entire human race. Adam plunged us all into the depths of sin and separated us from holy God. It was as if we sinned against God when Adam sinned for Adam represented us. So we we must ask saints and we're going to ask this question a lot in these subpoints. But why did the son commit to be a federal head for a specific people? Why did he commit to be a federal head? Why was it important for the son to go on the behalf of others? And the reason is this, if the son didn't commit to the father that he would be a new federal head, then we simply have no hope. With reconciliation to God. If he didn't commit to be a federal head of a new people. Then we simply have no hope for reconciliation with God. We will all die in our sins. If we do not have one who will go before us and be better than the one who went before us. The sin that we inherited from our first federal head Adam is so great. It's so deep. That we needed one to come who would represent us rightly. Who would represent us perfectly. And he would do or undo the curse of Adam. It was necessary for the son to become incarnate and represent us perfectly. In fact, saints, the son was the only one who was fitted to be our federal head. He was the only one who could properly represent us. We needed one who was truly God and truly man. And saints, we must note that the son in eternity past was commanded by the father to be a new and better federal head, not for the entire human race, but for us. The son was commissioned by his father to succeed where Adam failed. He was to do what Adam did, but do it on a whole more, much more grander scale. All that the incarnate son, Jesus Christ, did, he didn't do it simply for himself. The son didn't need to save himself. He needed to save a particular people. So all that Christ did, he did for us. As the son lived, he lived for us. As the son died, it was a death for us. And as he was raised from the grave, it was a resurrection for us. The old boys would say Christ is surety. Christ is surety, which is a term derived from Hebrews 7.22, which says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And that word guarantor can be uh, changed or rendered surety. And when we say surety uh, in human terms, a surety is a cosigner. Someone who says if this person doesn't pay the debt, then I'll do it. But we aren't to think of those terms when we think of Christ as surety. For Christ doesn't become our cosigner. Christ says, or I should say, the son says, I will take on all of their debt. I will, I will not take on their debts or I will, I will not cosign and, and say, well, let's see if they can, if they can handle it and they can uh, complete the uh, and fulfill the law and, and, and if they can offer up perfect sacrifices to God. He says no. I will be the one who takes on the full debt that they owe. Christ is surety. And saints, what this also means is not only does Christ take on our debt and stand in our place, but everything Christ wins for us will undoubtedly come true. Christ is surety. The son will faithfully perform the covenant he made with his father. Jesus is to be our surety. That everything connected with the covenant is unchangeably and eternally sure. Andrew Murray says, there is no, uh, there is the assurance of the sufficiency of Christ's finished redemption as Christ's surety. All that was needed to put away sin, to free us uh, Entirely. And forever, from, and forever from its power has been accomplished by Christ. His blood and death, his resurrection and ascension have taken us out of the power of the world and transplanted us into a new life in the power of the heavenly world. All of this is divine reality. Christ is surety that the divine righteousness and the divine acceptance... That all sufficient divine grace and short sure strength are forever ours. We don't have to guess if, if Christ completed the works of the law on our behalf, but he is surety that all that these can and will be communicate to us in a broken continuance. Christ is surety. The work of being a federal head for his people will be one that will not end in failure like the first man did. Crisis surety. The second subpoint, point, saints, uh, the son was to become incarnate. The son was to become incarnate. He was to be our federal head and he was to become incarnate. Now, we will be diving more in depth uh, in the doctrine of the incarnation in the, the upcoming weeks. But we read in the New Testament that one of the commitments the father gave to the son in eternity past was the son was to become incarnate. Hebrews 10, 5 says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. Friends, when we say that the son was commanded to become incarnate, which is a great mystery in and of itself. But what that word incarnate simply means is the son was to take on flesh. When you think of incarnation, think of taking on flesh, assuming flesh. But it's much more than that. He was to become what he was not, without ever ceasing to be what he was. That is an an important distinction that if you're taking notes, you must note that the Son was to become what he was not, without ever ceasing to be what he was. It wasn't as if the Son, the eternal Son, when he became incarnate, Set aside his divine attributes and then only use them in his every once in a while in his 33 years of living. God cannot set aside his attributes. If he was to do so, then he would no longer be God. But the son takes on, he assumes flesh and blood in his humanity. He had a human mind, a human will. Will. He was, he was to become what he was not, without ceasing to be what he was. Our confession in chapter 8, paragraph 2, uh, best summarizes the incarnation of the Son. It says, the two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man. Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God God. And man, the son assumed a full and complete human nature without sin. Always, always add that, saints, when we talk about the incarnation and and the son assuming a human nature, you always have to add without sin. In his humanity, he got tired. He got hungry. He had to sleep. He was tempted. All of what it means to be human, all of the, the faculties of what it means to be human, God or Christ or the son assumed yet without sin. The word became flesh. The eternal son condescended to our likeness, our human likeness, taking on our common infirmities yet without sin. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin has said, and I love this wonderful illustration. He says, when the son became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed one another. Namely, God and man in the incarnation, heaven kissed earth. The eternal son became what he was not, whatever, without ever ceasing to be what he was for our sake. God and man meet in the one person of Jesus Christ. But we have to ask saints, why did the son have to become incarnate? Why did he have to become incarnate? And we'll answer this question more in depth in the coming weeks but to give us one answer the son had to become incarnate for the incarnation makes communion with God possible. The incarnation makes communion with God possible. Peter says in 1 Peter 3:18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. The incarnation saints opens up the possibility of communion between God and man, which would otherwise be impossible. If you read our confession of faith uh, and when it speaks about in chapter seven of of God's covenant, it speaks of this, this wide gap that exists between God and man. The son, as B.B. Warfield has said, descended to an infinite distance to reach man's highest conceivable exaltation. As our confession says, God cannot commune with man except by some form of voluntary condescension. If there is no voluntary condescension, then God cannot meet with man. And saints, the incarnation is not only a voluntary condescension, but it is the most glorious form of condescension. Jesus Christ wasn't half God and half man. He wasn't uh, he he wasn't just a a, a human human body with a divine mind, but he was truly man and truly God. But one Christ without sin, if Jesus were in all things only man, he would be like us. If he was just like us, then we are still at an infinite distance to God if he was just only man. But if, even, but, and likewise we can say if, if Jesus Christ was simply only God, then saints, we would still, then we would have still no communion with God. We needed one who was truly man and truly God, and Christ as the mediator, as the God-man, bridges the gap between the infinite God and the finite man. Through the work of the Incarnate Son, Jesus makes a way for sinners to approach Holy God. If our bodies and souls are to be redeemed, saints, Jesus had to possess a body and soul. Since whatever is not assumed by Jesus cannot be healed. What is not assumed is not redeemed. The Incarnation was necessary, was a necessary work of the Son. Now let's move on to the third sub point, and that is the son had to obey the law of God perfectly. He had to be a federal head, he had to become incarnate, and he had to obey the law perfectly. The moral law was part of the covenant of redemption, and the son was to keep the moral law of God perfectly. The best summarization, as you know, of the moral law is the Ten Commandments, All peoples are obligated to obey God's holy moral law. For we are image bearers of God. A part of you being saved or not. You are under the Ten Commandments. You are under and obligated to obey God's law. When one dies who is not saved, God will judge the individual based on the moral law. Nobody can obey God's moral law perfectly. All of us fail in our best attempts to obey God's moral, holy standard perfectly. Yet Jesus Christ, the God-man, succeeded. Jesus Christ obeyed and fulfilled the law on our behalf. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians four, 4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born under the woman, uh, born under the law christ is born under the law to redeem us from under the curse of the law and saints that is why it was necessary for the father to command the son to obey the moral law for an adam the law was our enemy for an adam the law reminded us of our sins however in christ we are not reminded that the law is our sins but the law is our friend the law is a delight to our soul. The law is one that is to be kept and upheld for it is God's righteous and holy standard. That is why the son of God, hear this, who was superior to the law, the son who was superior to the law, the son who gave the law was to place himself under the law. What a great, what a great a mystery that is and what a what a what a what, we are to worship christ in light of that it's one who is superior to the law place himself under the law in order to pay the penalty for sin and to merit everlasting life for his people without the son perfectly obeying the moral law of god on our behalf then we have no righteousness accredited to our account how do you get righteousness accredited to your account It is not simply by the death of Christ. It is by him obeying God's moral holy law. That is why it is so uh, important for us to uphold Christ and his perfect uh, work in fulfilling and obeying God's moral law. It is because Christ's uh, perfect obedience to the moral law, but as well as the ceremonial and civil law. Uh, we, we are we we when we talk about the covenant of redemption, saints, the father gave to the son in the covenant, the moral law to complete. But remember that Jesus Christ was an Israelite. He was a Jew. He was born under the Mosaic law. He, he had to keep the ceremonial and civil laws too. What a great work of our savior. So not only did he have to obey the moral law, but being born under the Mosaic covenant, he would have to obey the ceremonial and civil law. And we know that Christ fulfilled the ceremonial and civil law. Christ was never ceremonially uncleaned. He never had to offer sacrifices for himself. He earns a righteous standing before holy God for us by completing the works of the law. Christ fulfills the law. He doesn't do away with the law, but he redeems us from under the curse of the law. Let's move on to our first, fourth subpoint. Our last subpoint. That is, the son was to suffer and die for his people. The son was to suffer and die for his people. And saints, this is what makes Christ's covenant unique. In in uh, the covenant that God imposed on Adam, the requirements of that covenant was Adam wasn't wasn't to suffer and die. He was to work, but he wasn't to suffer. He was to work and enjoy that work, but he wasn't, co- he wasn't uh, required to suffer unto death. And we can say the same with the Noahic, with the Abrahamic, uh, Mosaic, and, and Davidic. All of those ones whom God imposes covenants upon were never required to suffer. But at the covenant of redemption, the Father commands that the Son to suffer and die. The Son must suffer unto death for his particular people. But again, saints, we have to ask, why did Jesus or the son have to suffer unto death? Why was it necessary for the son to suffer unto death? Why could he just become incarnate, obey and fulfill God's law perfectly, and then go back to heaven? But why did he have to die? Why was that part of the covenant of redemption? And the answer is this, saints, in order for God's wrath to be appeased and satisfied, blood had to be shed. In order for God's wrath to be appeased and satisfied, in order for his justice to be appeased and satisfied, God, our blood had to be shed. Uh, God demanded a payment for our sins. God must punish sin. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews twenty-nine, twenty-two: under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin. God told Adam, the wages of sin are death. Sin diver, uh, deserves an infinite punishment because sin is an offense to an infinite God. It's an offense to God's infinite majesty, his holiness. That is why the incarnation is of utmost importance, saints. For the one, or I should say for the only one who was qualified The only one who was fitted to pay the debt that we owed to God, hear this, was God himself. Let me say that one more time. The only one who was fitted to pay the debt that we owe to God was God himself. Augustine, in his confessions, has a wonderful line. He says, you owe nothing, yet you pay your debts. You write off debts to you. Let's remember, Saints, when Adam sinned against God, the effects was an infinite God, it was an infinite one. Adam sinned against an infinite God, which deserves an infinite punishment. Sin is infinite. Therefore, only God can pay the debt of an infinite sin. Since sin is infinite, since we owe an infinite debt to God, only God could pay the debt of an infinite sin. This, again, points to the necessity of the incarnation. One theologian has said Christ's infinite nature, namely his deity, gave to his finite human sufferings, infinite value. Christ's infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings, infinite value. The God man, Jesus Christ, had to die for his death was of infinite value. Christ's death removes an infinite amount of sin against our holy God. For without his death, God's justice is not satisfied. Without the shed blood of Christ, without his perfect sacrifice, we still owe an infinite debt to God. We would still have to offer bulls and goats. But the perfect lamb has come and paid the debt that we owe. The work of redemption required the incarnate son to suffer on to death. So in closing of this point, saints, That is the work of the Son. That is what the incarnate Son did on your behalf. He simply didn't die for you, but He lived for you. We must not think of the work of the Son as simply the death of Him. We have to add that He lives for us. This is what the Son was committed to do for us. He was to be our federal head. He was to become incarnate. He was to obey the law of God perfectly. And He was to suffer and die for his people. Now let's move on to our last point. That is, what is our response? What is our response? What is our response? Now that we have considered the work of the son, let's look at the practical implications and how we are to respond to our great savior's work. Well, first, we aren't to respond with skepticism. We aren't to respond with skepticism, we aren't to be like the atheists and the, Mormon, or the, and the Muslims and all the critics and skeptics that deny the great work of the incarnate Christ. God can't become man. There is no law of God, and no one is obligated to keep it. If the Father punished the Son on the cross, then that's divine child abuse. Those assertions, saints, are silly, and they are dashed to pieces by the pages of Holy Scripture. Saints, we aren't to ever approach the glorious truth of the work of our Savior as lawyers and debaters, but as sons and daughters. We aren't to view the Bible and and the great work of 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 our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We aren't to approach the doctrine of the work of Christ just as we approach going to a movie or going to a restaurant that we've never been to before. And reviewing on if the movie was great. Criticizing the food, if it was cold, or if it was too hot, or if it was bland. When we come to the glorious truth of our Savior, we are to accept it, worship, and shut our mouths. Secondly, we aren't to respond to the work of Christ as if we have graduated from hearing His great work. We aren't, let me say that in bold and underlined letters to wake many of you all up, take naps. We aren't to consider and respond to the work of Christ as if we have graduated from ever hearing of his great work. I don't care if you are the greatest theologian from John Calvin to John Owen. You are to keep at the forefront of your mind the person and work of Christ and always come back to it. Always come back to it. We aren't to say, well, let me just excuse and not and 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 forget about the person and work of Christ. And let me let me look at the seven seals in Revelation. Let me find out who the antichrist is. You can do those study saints. And those are wise things and noble things to do. But don't forget the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially when one is preaching to you, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Saints, we have a tendency and I've seen it time and time again, even in my own life, to become uninterested and unmoved when we know and hear something regularly. When we know something and we know it really well, and when we hear it regularly, we become so unmo- unmoved and uninterested when we hear those things. When we hear a teaching on the work of our Savior, we aren't to respond with a casual head nod of agreement, but rather we are to respond As if we are hearing it for the first time. And I'm not saying run uh, laps around the church. But you should have a a heart that is burning within you. Because you are hearing of your Redeemer's work. We aren't to say when uh, the preaching is going on that when is the pastor ever going to move on from preaching the person and work of Christ? We heard a great sermon this morning of Pastor Antonio. uh, There are many churches and many pastors who cater to the congregation. What does the congregation want to hear about? What's the mood that the congregation uh, and the church should be? Saints, me, Pastor Antonio, Pastor John, are to preach to you one message of one person, Christ and Him crucified. And if we ever graduate... And if we ever think that we are too above, that we know more than, than than preaching on the person and work of Christ and Him crucified, then we are to you are to remove us from our duties. You are to remove us from the pulpit. Christ, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, as Spurgeon has said, is the highest science, and the person and work of Christ is the apex. All the treasures of God are hidden in Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. We are never to graduate from hearing of our great Savior. And saints, the great news of our Redeemer's work, saints, is we are to approach his work, his person, like a child. We are to approach the doctrine of Christ as a child, one who approaches something so weighty and majestic. You remember when you were a child and you would go and see grand things and learn about grand things, how in awe you would be, how 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 your eyes would widen up when every time you would hear of it. We are never to lose that. We are to remain in awe of our Lord's person and work. So how do we respond to the person and work of Christ or specifically the work of the incarnate Lord? How are we to, how are we to respond? Well, first, for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever hearing this message, and if you want to know how should the unbeliever respond They are to respond in repentance. They are to repent in dust and ashes. They are to ask for forgiveness. They are to seek the one who has paid the full debt of their sins. But how is the believer to respond? How are we who have been purchased by Christ, uh, united to Christ by faith, given and sealed with the Holy Spirit? How are we to respond? Well, first, like all things, we are to respond with worship. We are to respond with worship. We are to respond with hymns and spiritual songs. We are to respond with, with Bible reading and prayer. We are to respond with hearts burning, with smiles on our faces, with, with heads nodding, with amening, with saying yes to our great King, our Savior, we are to respond with eagerness of zeal to, self, to tell someone of the work of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we aren't just to keep it to ourselves, but we are to, to be like that Samaritan woman. When, 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 the, when Christ uh, revealed to her that he is, I am, what does she do? She runs back to her village and she tells everyone of the great Savior, of the great I am. We are to tell and go out to the to the to the highways and, and all of that. We are to tell people that the debt has been paid. We are the debt has been paid. Repent of your sins. We are to respond saying to lastly with wonder We are to respond with wonder how the eternal Son condescends to our human likeness, the incarnation of the Son, should leave us with awe. And then we should be left with reverence. We are to wonder, we are to awe, and be left with reverence. Jesus worked on our behalf, saints. The righteous demands of obedience to the law was fulfilled for us by Christ. God's justice was satisfied on the cross for us by Christ. And everything Christ won for us is affirmed and vindicated by his resurrection. You might ask, how do we know that all this is true? Christ is raised from the dead. Christ is raised from the dead. So in closing, saints, the work of the son is a doctrine that we are to be familiar with. We are to never graduate from and we ought to marvel in. Be familiar with, never graduate from, but to marvel in. Is a work that the Father gave to the Son in eternity past to accomplish. The Son willingly takes on that work, and by and in the power of the Spirit, He completes that work, bringing many sons to glory. What a great Savior! Let's pray.